and welcome to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am Leah Heigl and I am here with my co-host Aidan Muir and today is part two of last week's episode on omega-3 supplementation. So last week, if you didn't catch that one, we did cover omega-3 in relation to heart health, body composition, depression and anxiety, Alzheimer's, pregnancy, and joint health. So it was a pretty packed episode. Um, And this week we will cover firstly the kind of debate around omega-3 to 6 ratios, um, which is quite a big one. So we'll start there Um, and then we'll move on to plant-based omega-3 and then a deep dive into supplementation types, dosages, food, all of that. So starting with the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, there is some merit of truth to it. And it is also not as clear-cut as it might seem. Like a lot of people talk about it, talk about it as if it is super clear-cut. And it's got a lot of nuance. So I'm going to go through that. So one argument is that humans historically consumed a one-to-one ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, but now consume, depending on the source, somewhere between 5 and 15 to 1 ratio. So a lot more omega-6 than omega-3 right now. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. My first thought is that I do not like evolutionary arguments. That's not to dismiss the ratio thing. That's more to just be like, let's pay less attention to what humans did in the past with less food, like basing their choices on food availability and stuff like that. And more focus on the evidence we have in modern humans when we have the evidence. If we don't have the evidence, it's a different topic, but we do have a lot of evidence on this topic in humans. So I think it makes sense to look at that research and see what is optimal in humans in today's era. So some weaknesses in the simplified ratio argument are different levels of consumption. If you had a high intake of both omega-3 and omega-6, the ratio would be the same as if you have a low intake of both. Um, In isolation, that's not a massive flaw, but it's something to be aware of being like, you could argue that one or two, one out of both those scenarios would be better than the other. The ratio implies that omega-3 is good and omega-6 is bad, particularly in today's modern era where we consume a lot more omega-6 than omega-3, which when we go through the research, it's not that clear-cut, obviously. And the ratio alone doesn't account for food sources as well. So in isolation, that's another flaw because are we talking about like refined foods that contain omega-3 or are we talking about other stuff? So taking that a step further, nuts and seeds contain omega-6 but they're so clearly linked with positive health outcomes. If you find me a random study on pretty much any health topic and you do a randomized control trial where you give people 30 grams of nuts and seeds per day, on average, I would expect to jump to the conclusion and find an improvement in those health outcomes. It's something we just see time and time again, right? Um, If omega-6 in isolation without any other context was terrible for us, we wouldn't be seeing these improvements. From another perspective, a lot of high omega-6 foods are refined slash processed foods. A lot of people criticize seed oils and everything like that um, in the modern food supply. And the most common sources of seed oils are refined foods. Like if you go and package foods and look at the back of them and everything like that, you will see that they are containing some form of seed oil and everything like that. that's another topic in isolation, but that, that real driver of the whole seed oil debate is the whole omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. So we're kind of indirectly covering seed oils with this topic as well. A whole other wormhole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, food for thought there. So going deeper down the rabbit hole being like, let's look at this topic more directly. A 2019 meta-analysis found that higher linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 acid, so higher linoleic acid levels in the body was correlated with lower cardiovascular disease risk. Arachidonic acid, which is another omega-6, was mostly unlinked, but was slightly favored towards reducing CVD risk too. If omega-6 was really bad, this outcome would see seem unlikely. Like we're literally seeing higher intakes correlated with lower risk. Um, for context, because we haven't really mentioned already, but omega-6 and omega-3 are both polyunsaturated fats as well. Previous meta-analysis results have found that replacing saturated fat with omega-6 reduced coronary heart disease risk by around 24%. But a more recent meta-analysis using more tightly controlled variables found no change in risk. So this is part of why previous health advice was always pushing increasing polyunsaturated fats. It's never this simple. I, I hate narratives around being like, this study showed this and this is why public health advice did that because it's always way more complex than that. But it's one, one factor being like previous meta-analysis had found improvements in coronary heart disease. More recent ones didn't find a reduction, right? If I was going to simplify everything, because like the main thing I've been saying here is that it's not super clear-cut, but going through my interpretation of all of the research on omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is it makes sense to one, increase omega-3 intake if that is low. Two, reduce intake of omega-6 in the form of processed and refined foods if consumed in large amounts currently. Like if you are eating a lot of refined processed foods with large amounts of omega-6 coming through there, makes sense to reduce that. And three, not stress too much about omega-6 in foods like nuts and seeds. I've seen other people say it's less about the omega-6 ratio and it's more about it's less about the ratio and more about just increasing omega-3 in general. We know in Australia and most most Western countries and everything like that that our omega-3 intake is probably too low in comparison to where it ideally would be. I would just extend it to being like we should also potentially reduce our or we should reduce our intake of refined foods that are high in omega-6 as well. And that's probably going to get the majority of the health outcomes out of this. And you don't really need to think about it too deeply beyond that. Yeah. The last thing we want is people going like, I'm not going to eat any nuts and seeds because I'm a yeah, mega six. So 100%. I think that's a good takeaway. Um, the next topic we'll touch on is definitely more in my wheelhouse. And that's talking about plant-based uh, omega-3 versus fish oil omega-3. Um, so I'm just going to quickly recap the different kinds of omega-3 fatty acids. So we did go over this briefly at the start of the last episode, but I think in this context, it makes sense to recap. So there are three forms of omega-3 fatty acids. There is ALA, EPA, and DHA. So we've talked a lot about EPA and DHA so far, but very, very little about ALA. When we are talking about health outcomes from omega-3 supplementation, we typically are always talking about a fish oil form of supplementation, which is a direct form of EPA and DHA and contains you know, very little to no ALA. Um, so that's why we're talking mainly about those two things and rarely about ALA in isolation. So ALA itself is it needs to be converted to EPA and DHA in the body. So when we eat ALA specifically, which is mostly your plant-based sources, it then is converted into EPA and DHA once consumed. But we know that that's a pretty efficient, inefficient process. So we actually have to eat quite a large amount of ALA to get even just a little bit of EPA and DHA. And there are a lot of different factors that 
affect the conversion of ALA to EPA and then DHA. Um, but without going too deeply, like it, it is a pretty inefficient process. Um, so you do need to consume a lot of that ALA. And that's why we don't kind of see that so much in the research being kind of a, a main thing we're looking at. So why am I going on this like tangent of all the different kinds of omega-3? Bringing it back to that plant-based thing is because omega-3 in plant-based foods is, is mostly ALA. Um, so we're talking things like walnuts, chia seeds, flax seeds, hemp seeds. Um, they're kind of like the main sources of omega-3 on a plant-based diet. And that is ALA, omega-3. So we know that you need to eat quite a lot of that ALA from those plant-based sources to get, like I said, even just a little bit of that EPA and DHA. And it's the EPA and DHA is, that is linked to those positive health outcomes that we've been talking about. Um, so vegans are more likely or typically have a significantly lower um, omega-3 level in their blood as opposed to people who follow a fully omnivorous diet and that um, have things like oily fish in their diet. So that those direct food sources of EPA and DHA. Now, in terms of where we can actually get direct sources of EPA and DHA on a plant-based diet, there's no real food sources, but there are supplements. So a really good way to get EPA and DHA as a vegan is through microalgae. Um, so you're probably not going to eat microalgae as a food, <laughs> um, but you can take it in the form of a supplement. And those are pretty widely available these days. And microalgae supplements are pretty much like the, the vegan version of fish oil. Um, so we're looking at that direct source of EPA and DHA. So for some plant-based people, such as those with heart disease or high risk of cardiovascular um, disease, maybe athletes looking to improve recovery, pregnant and breastfeeding people, I would say supplementation is could sometimes be beneficial um, and in some cases necessary for overall good health outcomes. If you get a know, generic vegan client who's not looking to optimize stuff, but they just want general health. Um, how do you go about this? Do you, do you look and be like, are they consuming heaps of walnuts, flaxseed, etc.? If they're not, do you look at increasing that or do you go straight to the microalgae supplement? I think it's a good question because I don't have, I suppose looking at the research, there's very little research looking specifically in vegans and omega-3 supplementation versus food sources, etc. So I honestly, when I'm when it's like kind of a gen pop person, I will mostly look at food sources of ALA and, and ensure that they are adequate. So yeah. we'll try to get like, yeah, like some daily flaxseed, chia seed, walnuts, those kinds of things. It's something we will discuss and go, look, you should probably have a serve or two of these foods daily to meet your omega-3 requirements. Um, but if then we're adding in kind of other conditions or other reasons why we would want higher omega-3 intake, then that's when I would more so consider a microalgae supplement. Cool. Let's talk about dosage. So most people who are talking about the benefits of omega-3 are usually recommending higher dosages than what is typically researched. It's pretty rare for people to say one gram of omega-3 or one gram of fish oil or anything like that. Usually they're looking at higher dosages. And 
arguably that is what the research seems to show as well. Like a great example of this is when we're looking at research on triglycerides, where the most positive research involves around four grams of either EPA or EPA plus DHA. And it's a common theme I see amongst a lot of the, the omega-3 research that a lot of them are studying around the one gram dosage or less in a lot of cases. So I reckon if you did get a meta-analysis of all of the research showing three plus grams, it's going to look a lot more positive than it does. That's a bit of a statement. It's not a hill I'm willing to die on, but it's something that I, I do believe and that's my current interpretation of the research. Um, <clears throat> but it's pretty mixed. Like when we talked about the depression stuff last um, episode as well, like it, it found, like the research found that in depression, dosages of lower than one grams of combined EPA and DHA looked more promising in the research we have so far. Um, so it's a bit mixed, right? And that's kind of why it's hard to recommend something specifically. Another thing we touched on last episode that I'll refresh here is that a one gram fish oil capsule usually contains around 300 milligrams of combined EPA and DHA. So obviously to get something like a four gram combined dosage of EPA and DHA, um, takes over 10 capsules. So that's some context to think about when you are trying to implement that yourself. Um, how do we get this kind of dosage in Australia is an interesting question. It's something that I was thinking about as I was going through this because I noticed that say the four gram of just straight up EPA, that study used prescription omega-3 and that was in America. And it seems like it's a pretty common recommendation for if somebody's on statins and still has relatively high triglycerides to be given prescription omega-3 over there. How do we access something like that in Australia? Um, I'm not sure if prescription omega-3 is a thing, but what I would be looking at is high strength omega-3 supplements of some kind. Um, Tyler, who works on our team, sent me one from Chemist Warehouse, which has about 960 milligrams of combined EPA and DHA per capsule. And a point he made was that it's like, it's a little bit more expensive than the average omega-3 supplement, but when you actually do the price based on the EPA and DHA, it comes out cheaper. Yeah. It's more expensive per capsule, but if you're trying to get to a certain dosage, it actually does come out cheaper. And logistically, it, it would be a lot easier. It's not taking 10 fish oil capsules, which yeah. are huge. 100%. So there is no standard recommendation that I have. If I was looking at the triglyceride situation, I'd go higher than the dosage I'm about to recommend. But for most people, I usually recommend one to three grams of fish oil per day. I can see benefits to going higher. And I could also see arguments as to why I am wrong with my recommendation and everything like that. It's a little bit lower than other recommendations. And one is the logistical thing of how many fish oil capsules are you going to consume. Two is that there can be some downsides, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, it's more of a conservative thing and another thing is a lot of people i speak to will probably take this recommendation and then, then do it for years to come whereas some of the research we looked at particularly on the cvd risk was long term but a lot of other studies on fish oil are a bit shorter term than that so that's why my recommendation is a little bit lower but i'm pretty open to being wrong on that and i can see a lot of arguments for higher do you have any specific recommendations on dosage or anything like that i also tend to recommend one to three grams of fish oil per day Again, it's just like a logistical thing. Like, how do we logistically and easily get much higher than that? Yeah. Yeah, cool. So going too high is rare, um, but downsides could be, one, the unpleasantness of taking a lot. I remember, do you remember Ziz, um, the famous? <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> 
I saw him recommend 10 grams once when I was new to the, the lifting weights game and yeah. I took 10 grams a day for a little bit. Um, it's not the most pleasant thing. Yeah, I can imagine it wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, I didn't have any of the other issues, but some people can get GI upset if large amounts are consumed. That's a common one. And reflux and nausea mm. is another common one when people are having really large amounts. And another thing is that you'd have to take a lot before this is an issue, but the calories still count. 10 grams of fish oil is still 10 grams of fat, and that is around 90 calories. Yeah, something to consider, especially if you have a lower calorie budget or just kind of counting it towards your your overall calorie intake. Um, Another thing as like a bit of a side note is a a common question is if you're supplementing omega-3, does it need to be consumed alongside food or at a certain time, etc.? So taking omega-3 alongside food does appear to improve the absorption of that omega-3 by a little bit, um, particularly if the food does contain a decent amount of dietary fat. But overall, like the difference isn't huge. And if your intake of omega-3 is high enough for the outcomes that you're wanting, then again, it probably shouldn't really matter. Um, And consistency with your intake is going to be the biggest thing. So I know we talk about like, in this context, like we talk about creatine a lot in terms of like, it doesn't matter when you take it, just take it consistently. Kind of how we feel about omega-3 as well. So take it any time of the day. It doesn't matter if it's alongside a meal or not, but just take it at a time of day where you're going to be consistent with it. We're going to talk about the omega-3 index now. And this is a topic that I've looked pretty deeply into, but I don't have strong opinions on. And there's a few reasons why, which we might go through. So Basically, the omega-3 index is a measure of how much EPA and DHA is in the red blood cell membranes. It gives this as a percentage, and that is a percentage of the total fatty acids in the membranes. The reason why this is a better test than most other forms of testing for omega-3s is because red blood cells last somewhere between three and four months. Other methods are usually more skewed by shorter-term intake. E.g., if you had salmon two days ago, Mm -hmm it's going to skew the ratio to show higher omega-3. Whereas this, if you had salmon two days ago, but you hadn't had anything for like the three months prior to that, you're still going to have low levels. It's going to be more of an overview of your like recent intake. Yeah. Yeah. The company who sells this testing kit or the main company driving it is called Omega Quant. And they define the risk factors as being less than 4% being high risk of issues associated with low omega-3 status. 4 to 8% being moderate risk and greater than 8% being low risk. Theoretically, at a glance, this is a great concept. It could also be super useful for research since it helps with improving baseline data. Um, That's why I have such mixed opinions about it because I'm like, if this is a legitimate thing, this could dramatically help improve one, testing for yourself. Like I could do this test and be like, oh, I'm less than 4%. I should supplement way more omega-3 or anything like that. And that could improve all of the things omega-3 helps with. Or alternatively, it could help with testing baseline levels before studies. Like if we did a if we did randomized control trials of people with really low omega-3 baseline status and cardiovascular disease outcomes, we're probably more likely to find positive outcomes and we can find a better use case scenario for it. It's kind of like how I view vitamin D being like, if somebody's got a low vitamin D status at the baseline, they're probably way more likely to benefit from vitamin D supplementation. And all the research that assesses baseline data finds that it's likely more beneficial under those circumstances. If I think at a glance is a great concept, why, why, 
why am I not pushing it super hard? Um, there's a few things. So one is that the it's heavily driven by one person. Um, his name is Bill Harris, and he's one of the biggest omega three researchers. And his whole company is Omega Quant, and that is based on omega three and selling products around omega three. Um, I don't know anything about Bill Harris beyond like <laughs> reading his research and stuff yeah. like that. So this isn't this isn't me like saying anything more than that. Just being like, it's driven by one person, which leads me to the second point: Why hasn't this concept gained more mainstream mm-hmm. popularity? If it's so helpful, um, Bill Harris has been around for a long time. Omega Quant has been around for a long time. Omega three index testing has been around for a long time. Why is it that you can't just go into a GP and get them to test your Omega three index? Um, I'm not a skeptic who has his tinfoil hat on and is like, <laughs> doctors don't want you to know about this one hack that could improve your heart health. Um, I, whether I'm right or wrong, whether I'm naive or anything like that, I think doctors genuinely have the best interest at heart of their patients. They're trying yeah. to help people. We get into the health industry to try and help people. You might think I'm an idiot for saying that, but that is what I truly believe in a lot of circumstances. So because I look at the world through that lens, I therefore think with this topic, it's either a situation where the mainstream doesn't know that this exists and they don't know about the benefits of it, or there is a reason it hasn't gained popularity in the mainstream, which leads me to my third point of the marketing is a little bit aggressive from Omega Quant. Even those ranges I mentioned, they say that most people who are less than 4% on a test are at high risk of all of these issues. If that's true, why is the research on omega-3 supplementation so mixed? If you look at their marketing, they say the majority of people are less than 4% on the test. If people who are less than 4% on the test are at risk of all these things, and most people are at less than 4%, and then we, sup- we do a study where we supplement general population, why are we not seeing huge improvements? That's why I say it's aggressive marketing. This is not a right or wrong situation. This is something that I'm just looking at from an open-minded perspective being like, it, it, it seems like that's a bit heavily marketed. If greater than 8% is ideal, one red flag I see with that is in almost every area, we have an excessive range. Like even with vitamin D, right? We have this 50 to 150 range. And some people could make arguments for 180 and stuff like that. But no, not many people are out there being like, yeah, being 300 is fine. Like there's usually, there's always, sure. there's always a cutoff somewhere and you can argue about where the line is, but there's always a cutoff somewhere. The marketing for them just says greater than 8% is ideal. What percentage of your triglycerides and your red blood cell membranes is too high? Is greater than 12% detrimental or is that still fine? We don't have a cutoff point there, which is something that I think about. So if I'm interpreting this and you may or may not have the same interpretation as me, but my interpretation is, I think it's practical applications and benefits. I do actually believe that, but I'm also personally not reading into it too heavily yet. And I'm just looking at it from a theoretical perspective. I'm also not at a point where I'm even recommending my own clients or anything like that. Take this test and then use the information from that. I'm more just assessing their intake and being like, do I think they have a good intake or not? And do I think they could benefit from omega-3 for whatever their goals are? Yeah, I think you have a very healthy level of skepticism. And like we were talking about this a little bit off air in terms of the omega-3 index testing. And I just hadn't really thought about why it's not widely used. I mean, because I don't use it, I don't recommend it. Um, But I always thought it was something that was super interesting and could be an awesome tool. But I think it is interesting that, yeah, it's not widely used by GP practices and it's also not widely used in research. And why is that? Yeah. To think about. And like, yeah, as we were talking about off air, but it's kind of like, 
no, I just question everything. I just question ask the everything. question. Like, yeah. Yeah. And like the worst case that comes out of this is, um, I'm wrong, right? Like the worst yeah. case that comes out of this is that it is as good as it seems to be. And I'm yeah. wrong. Which would be awesome because yeah. <laughs> it would be a great tool. Exactly. Um, so next topic we're going to talk about is looking at food versus supplements when it comes to omega-3. Um, so eating fish that contains omega-3s has consistently been linked with positive health outcomes, arguably even more than omega-3 like direct supplementation itself um so for those who eat fish eating it two to three times per week is is a pretty solid recommendation um and particularly focusing on those higher fat fish such as like salmon sardines um because they are obviously going to have higher fat amounts and therefore higher omega-3 amounts than a low fat fish or something a bit leaner um so in that in this context those are better options. Looking specifically at salmon, so salmon, 100 grams of salmon contains just over two grams of combined EPA and DHA on average. So that's a really good source, like food source of omega-3 and could be used instead of supplementation. Um, personally, I find like those kinds of higher fat fish do tend to be pretty expensive and sometimes it is cheaper to supplement, but I guess it really depends on how much you're supplementing with um, and kind of what outcomes you're, you're wanting from increasing your omega-3 intake. Um, theoretically, like the lower intake of omega-3 coming through food sources in your diet, the more of an argument there is to supplement as well. Um, so if someone like doesn't eat fish, so talking about like maybe my plant-based clients, um, there's more of a reason why you may want to directly supplement. Going opposite to the plant-based area, we're going to talk about grass-fed versus grain-fed omega-3 content in meat. Um, this is probably the last topic we'll cover and when I was doing the prep for this, I, I liked that I put this last because it's like I put so much work into prepping for these these two podcasts that we've just done. And this last one is so simple. <laughs> like I didn't need to prep much of this. Um, I'm not even going to talk about grass-fed versus grain-fed in general. I'm only going to talk about the omega-3 thing. So grass-fed is often pushed as superior to grain-fed for a variety of reasons. I, I'm not going to touch on that topic. We may talk about that as a separate topic because I think it's a deeper topic than omega-3. There's so many variables that go into that. So I'm just going to pretend that topic doesn't exist. I'm just going to talk about addressing claims about omega-3. So often percentage differences are used when people are pushing grass-fed beef, for example, um, being higher in omega-3. They will say it is 300% higher in omega-3 than grain-fed, for example. Um, and this is another thing people talk about, changes in the food supply and everything like that. But there's one obvious issue with this, and you don't need to look too far to see this issue. Red meat is low in omega-3. I was just thinking that. I'm like, are we talking fish, like grain or grass? No, we, we're simply talking about <laughs> grass. Versus, and I, I've seen this argument a few times around um, over the years. It's not a super common argument, but yeah. it's something that I see. Um, and it's usually slipped in there amongst a lot of other potential benefits of grass-fed versus grain-fed meat. Like it's just like slipped in there being like that's higher in omega-3. Sure. It's 300% higher. Um, if you look at the total omega-3 content of either grass-fed or grain-fed um, beef, it is barely anything in comparison to other options like salmon. So the way I view it is I would just ignore that component of the grass-fed versus grain-fed kind of situation and just focus about any other aspect of that conversation that you want to look at. If we're looking to get omega-3s, like if we are looking to get it from an animal source, it, it is just marine sources that we're really looking at. 
Awesome. Um, so this has been our full recap of Omega-3 over these last two episodes. This has been episode 95 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. As always, if you could leave a rating and review, super appreciated. Uh, but otherwise, thanks for tuning in. Thanks.